Good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Um, before we begin uh, reading, uh, I'd, like to, I'd like us to turn our hearts toward the Lord in prayer, uh, that we would focus on His Word, that we would be listening, that we would be uh, considering all the things that God says in His Word, uh, specifically in the passages that we're going to be dealing with today, um, and that we would respond appropriately. Right, that's really should be our attitude every time we we come together, um, and every time we really even if even if we're by ourselves at home reading the Bible, that should always be our attitude toward God's Word, that we would listen to what God is saying, and that we would respond appropriately, um, you know, or obe- or obedience. You know, that's really what we're getting at. So let's um, uh, let's pray, and then let's get to uh, to this today's section. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your Word. Thank you. Uh, for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for accomplishing salvation uh, for us. Uh, Lord, many of us recognize that we deserve death and hell, that there's nothing we could do uh, even to apprehend the truth of your word if you hadn't opened our mind to it, if you hadn't, through your Holy Spirit, given us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to turn in faith and repentance, then we could not be saved. Um, and I just want to thank you for that faith that you have given to us. And Lord, I, I ask that as we come to your word today, that you would be helping us to really focus on what you're saying, to turn it inwardly, and to respond appropriately, that we would believe you in your word um, with the same faith that you have given us uh, to trust in Christ alone for our salvation, that we would trust your word, um, whether it is in the moment encouraging or whether it is um, convicting, that we would trust the truth of your word and respond appropriately by believing and then obeying. Father, uh, help us to give you glory through the way that we respond to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, as we, as we look at this passage um, it, is a, it is a heavy passage, and as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking, well, um, I never want to be, uh, if you've ever seen like some old movies where the people, I, th- I think they're made by unbelievers, I don't really know, where they'll show a preacher and he's sort of banging on things and people are scared to death, you know, I don't want to be that kind of preacher, I don't want to take away people's hope um, and scare everybody. But there are some times in Scripture where it's really good for us to be scared. To take a second and reread three, four, five times with a sense of, of awe at who God is and with a sense of fear because His Word just cut across our lives. There are absolutely times when we need to have that attitude. So as I was reading this, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted us not to forget that Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, is not removed from the entire book of Hebrews. It's also not like a standalone passage within it without um, 19 through 25 and uh, 32 through 39. So instead of undoing everything that he's telling us in this middle section, I thought it would be appropriate if we read the whole section. So that's why I'd like you to uh, just uh, turn to verse 19. I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to, I don't have it on the slide, so I'd like you to look at your Bible. Uh, and we're going to read from 19 through 39, and then we'll get into the passage that I want to get into today. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. 
Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For, who, for we know who, him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict, full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, when he in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. I think this is It's always appropriate to not forget the immediate context surrounding a verse or a passage that we're reading in Scripture. And so as we we look at that section as a whole, we remember that midway through chapter 10, he sort of closes off his teachings about the superiority of Christ. Specifically in chapters 7 through 10, he's talking about Christ as our high priest, Christ as our sacrifice, Christ is a better blood sacrifice, promising a better covenant uh, with promises in it that are better than the old covenant, right? And, and, and so he's talked to us all about the superiority of Christ, and really this, the second half of chapter 10 is a long call to uh, an exhortation to perseverance. And so the first thing that he gave us in um, 19 through 25, which we talked about last week, were three positive exhortations for the believer. You know, since you have said that you believe all these things that I'm just reminding you of, you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, in his superior person, in his superior work, and in all he accomplished on the, on the cross for you, and in, and in rising from the grave for you, and all he does for you now, interceding for you with God, always providing atonement for your sin, always making you right before God. Here's three things that you need to do to respond to that. One is draw near by faith. Two is hold fast to that hope you have in Christ that one day you're going to stand before God because he's in your life now, he's sanctifying you. And three, you need to encourage each other That is where we step into today's passage. He says, you could almost put a because here. You need to encourage each other. Because if you keep on sinning deliberately, you see how the tone of that warning comes? This warning, he's not stepping away to talk to people who have never positively responded to the gospel. He's talking to the same group of believers that he loves very, very deeply. So he's given them these three encouragements from last week, and he's also going to give them a warning. Right? Anytime that you, you want to help people to grow or learn in anything, right? Even, even if you're not talking about something biblical, you want to encourage, but you also want to warn. I'm sure Nathan goes through that when he talks to younger police officers. I'm sure that, that uh, Paul might do that if any, he's talking to any engineers who have less experience than him. He's going to give them positive encouragements, things they need to do to grow in their work, and things they need to watch out for so they don't fail. And you could say that about any, probably any job that there is. Here are the things that you need to keep doing. These are things you need to do right. This is something you might want to do more, and this is something you want to watch out for. So as we read the passage today, I don't want to read it disconnected from the rest of Hebrews. Um... One of the things that I'd like to do uh, is define apostasy. Because when he makes this connection about deliberate sin and ending up telling people, you know, if you, if you continue on this path, you are not going to be saved. 
you are ultimately going to be rejected and you're going to face the wrath of God forever. He's talking about apostasy. He's not talking about Christian uh, possibly losing their salvation. If a person has actually come to Christ and trusted him alone for their salvation, that person is saved, period. But what God has done in the ultimate life of a believer doesn't necessarily translate to us being able to determine about everybody else around us, maybe even about ourselves, what the end of our road will be. Does that make sense? He's not saying if you're a Christian, you could fall away. He's saying you might not be a Christian. There's a good opportunity for us to examine ourselves and find out, are, are, are we apostate? Are we, are we on that road? Are we doing something that puts us in danger of being on that path? So I, I thought the first thing we should do is, is define our terms. And then we're going to show how throughout the warnings in the book of Hebrews, I'm just going to briefly go over those, uh, how it is that he is saying you need to watch out for deliberate sin and continuing in deliberate sin because it might just mean you're an apostate. And I think we'll be able to see that by looking at all the warnings he's given so far. So apostasy, first, first off. It's an act of refusing to continue to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith. This is Webster's Dictionary. This is not a, a, you know, um, a religious definition. This is just what the word means. Or abandonment of a previous loyalty. So within the, but within the framework of Scripture, it means to abandon the true faith. This was used in the Old Testament when, um, I think it's in Jeremiah, where, where God says to the people, you know, I have seen your continual apostasies. That's turning away, rejection of God. I've seen it. You're always turning away. And it's the same thing that the author of Hebrews is warning about, but in the fullness of the full understanding of the gospel, right? So, whereas the people in Jeremiah's day knew God's word. They had the law. They had uh, several of the prophets. They had the histories up to their day anyway. But they didn't have the full gospel that we have today. So apostasy then, ignoring the word of God and continuing sin, is the same thing as today, only you have more information. So what I wanted to do was piece together the warnings that we have so far so that we can see that this is, these are not random warnings like, oh, watch out for this, and oh, watch out for that, and oh, watch out for this. Not exactly. He's telling you different aspects to watch out for that will show you your apostasy. Does that make sense? That will lead down that road. There's a lot of different steps on the road to hell. And he says, I want you to watch out for these steps. So first in chapter 2, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, namely the superior revelation through Jesus Christ of God to man, right? As he says, the things that we've heard from in the past and all the different ways we heard through the prophets, that was still true, but we have a fuller understanding, the final and the complete understanding of who God is to man and ultimately what salvation is through Jesus Christ. We have a fuller, more complete word. So we must pay careful attention to this word so that we don't drift away. That's one aspect of of, um, apostasy. And keep in mind, apostasy is not just rejection of Christ. It is making a profession of faith in Christ of some kind, being identified with his saved people in some way and turning away from that truth. So you could drift away, he says, if you don't pay careful attention to this word, to the superiority of Christ and what he has done through the gospel. And then in chapter 3, he says, so as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. What he's talking about here is sin. He's talking about people, uh, the most likely part where he's talking about do not harden your hearts are those people who who, who by gradual, uh, not gradual, by, by continual disobedience, showed themselves to be unbelievers. Sure, they had been taken out of Egypt. They'd been delivered from slavery. But then when they were in the desert and God commanded them, they didn't listen. They disobeyed. 
continually, over and over and over again. You might think of when you, when you see the term harden your hearts, remember that Pharaoh repeatedly heard the word of God through Moses and he repeatedly disobeyed and his heart just kept getting harder. God said about those people, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So they, they, a person wanders, a person disobeys, continually, repeatedly, and, sorry, they're going to perish and not enter his rest. Second half of that, uh, um, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. You see, ultimately, that heart is sinful and unbelieving. It does not truly believe whatever that person has said in the past or even says currently, they don't actually believe in God. They might like aspects of the gospel. They might like the benefits of being in a church, but they don't actually believe the word of God. They've turned away from him. I wanted us to see this part here too. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. He makes the same connection of encourage each other so that you don't get deceived by sin so that ultimately you are not rejected. The same connection exists in chapter 10. That's why I want, one of the reasons I want to put it back to this passage. Because sin can deceive a person so that they end up rejecting the faith totally. There's a lot of ways sin can deceive us. I'm not going to go into those now. Um, but just briefly, I would mention sin can make us think that we're in charge because we can choose what to do. Sin can go unnoticed, so we might think that nobody's watching. Sin promises momentary satisfaction. So we might not realize that it's trapping us and making us a slave. Sin might make you think that you're getting what you want. But hell is not full of people who are enjoying what they wanted. Sin is deceitful. And so we need to encourage each other. Chapter 4. Let us make, therefore, every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Again, the apostate person who perished in the desert is very similar to the apostate person who will go to hell forever because they choose disobedience rather than obedience to Christ. They choose disobedience. And he says, the word of God is living and active. The word of God shows you who you are. As we examine ourselves in scripture and we sort of set check and say, oh, well, am I being obedient to this? Do I believe this? Am I acting like I believe this? Is my life based on the fact that I say I believe this? James says it's a mirror. Here he says it discerns your thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. And he reminds us nothing at all is hidden from God's sight. I think there have been numerous um, people who profess faith over the years who get away with sin for their whole life. I read the story this last week, and I'm not going to tell you the guy's name because I didn't investigate and find out if all the details were correct, right? Um, but he was a theologian who's passed on now, um, wrote numerous commentaries that other believers have read and studied over the years. Um, I don't know if you would know his name or not anyway, but we'll just skip that. Um, but for a great period of his life, he had a mistress who was his secretary, and he's writing theology books. And he's writing for the instruction of other believers and even teachers. And while engaged in a continual adulterous affair 
even to the point where he moves his mistress into their house. And his wife, his poor wife, he says to her, um, when she confronts him about this, uh, he, he says, if you don't like it, basically you can go. And, and in his writings, he has said, you know, I don't know why God has given me this particular struggle, but I can only come to the conclusion that he wants me here because I can't give up this person that I love. Are you kidding me? This guy who had this great, vast knowledge may have understood things about God's word academically that I, I, I don't understand at all. Surely probably had a better knowledge of biblical languages than I do. But it right, came right down to it, he chose to disobey. In the face of what God's word says, he chose continual, deliberate disobedience and still tried to call himself a believer. I can guarantee you that that did not work out for him. Because nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give account. Chapter 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. I remind you like I did whenever I taught through this particular passage uh, some months ago, that that this idea of sharing in the heavenly gift and participating doesn't mean that they're an authentic believer, right? There are plenty of places where we can see, I think in 1 Corinthians, um, where, where Paul is talking to them about uh, being married uh, to an unbeliever. You know, somebody who, you have two unbelievers, they're married, one of them gets saved, and he says, don't leave your spouse because that other person is sanctified by you. He doesn't mean that they're sanctified in the sense that they're going to heaven, means they're set apart. Remember, there's two aspects of sanctification. There's one that means to be set apart, and there's one that means to be made holy. Author of Hebrews is very clear that only those who actually have abiding, enduring faith in Christ are, the, are going to be ultimately sancti- uh, sanctified and purified and made holy. But both Paul and the author of Hebrews see that by identifying with the church, or in, in Paul's letter, by being married to a believer, there, is a certain, there are certain aspects of covenant blessing that you are uh, privileged to in this life. And by expressing faith in Christ, you will, if you obey, see some of the covenant blessings of being part of God's covenant people, even though you are not actually a believer. But he says here, if you fall away, if you deny Christ, if you walk away, whatever your earlier profession of faith is, you're lost. It's impossible to bring you back to repentance if you ultimately reject Christ. He uses this example. This should bring our minds back to what Jesus and even John the Baptist said about any tree that doesn't produce good fruit. He says, land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. We understand that the, the rain is, he's probably referring to the teachings of Christ and the apostles and they're receiving this, this teaching but the only thing, per, uh, but I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. The first example is the one who's the, the God's, God's teaching is falling into their life through preaching, through reading, through study, through discipleship, through all the aspects of the way we interact with Scripture, and they are producing a crop. They're producing good fruit. They're blessed by God. And he says, but land that produces thorns and thistles, make the connection between sin and, and the original consequences of sin was that now the land's going to produce thorns and thistles, Right? It's not going to produce just good fruit. There's going to be a bunch of thorns and thistles. So the person who is receiving the teaching and even identifying as a believer and yet only producing sin, they're in danger of being cursed. 
Because if they continue down that path, they're going to show themselves to be an apostate, one who fully and finally turns away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the end, it will be burned. We need to understand this is the full, final, complete fires of hell forever. So apostasy is refusing to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith. And even within Webster's Dictionary, obedience has to go with what you say, right? You can't say that you believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you don't obey Him. You can't say it because you prove that He's not your master by your disobedience, by willful, continual disobedience. So you see, as we look at this passage today, if we deliberately keep on sinning, I think it's important that we look at that word deliberately. It means, uh, so if you do something in a deliberate manner, if you do something deliberately, you're doing it with a full awareness of what you're doing. You're doing it in a way that is intended, that is planned. Such as trying deliberately to mislead someone or a deliberately harsh review. You're doing it purposefully and with thought. You know what you're doing. Another way to look at it would be a way that's not hurried, slow, careful, methodical. You could say premeditated. If we deliberately keep on sinning. So he doesn't say if you've committed one deliberate sin, you're beyond salvation, right? But if you have a laissez-faire attitude, if you have a careless attitude toward any deliberate sin, you really should focus. You should be really careful. Because he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, if you continue on in that way, after you've received the knowledge of the truth, I think that we need to understand this, just make sure we understand this appropriately. He's not saying, remember he's writing to a church, he's not saying if you saw a chick track and you threw it away and didn't respond, then there's no hope for you. That's not what he says. He's not saying if you've heard the gospel and don't believe it, he says, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. This is something that a person, it, we might think in terms of uh, John chapter 1. As many as received him, as believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You've received this knowledge. Keep in mind, he's writing to a church. He's writing to people who profess Christ. He's writing to people who have even made it through some forms of persecution. Forms of persecution that, I don't think anybody in this room has faced. He says, you've received this knowledge. And I'm going to make the point that there are two kinds of knowledge that are talked about in Scripture. There's knowledge that's normal facts, like, you know, you heard it's going to rain tomorrow. Might not happen. Even sometimes you heard that so-and-so died, but they didn't. I don't know if they still have those things showing up on Facebook. People die, everybody's sad, and then they're like, hey, they're still alive. It's not that kind of knowledge. This is experienced knowledge. This is knowledge that has been put into practice. Like a person who professes faith in Jesus Christ and may have some kind of, you know, um, reformation of their character. They might turn away from certain sins, turn away from certain habits, break off certain relationships, uh, whatever. They might have some kind of initial response. Like the, like the, the seed that fell on shallow soil that sprung up quickly. They've received the knowledge. Remember, they've put it into practice. It's experienced knowledge of the truth. Not just any truth, but specifically the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, if you make a, some kind of profession of the faith, and it seems to be a, a profession of knowledge, not just like you don't really understand the gospel, you don't really know what you're getting into, and you're a little kid, and you're like, you know, somebody led you through the sinner's prayer. I know that happened to me. I don't know if it happened to any of you. Um, even got ducked under water, had no idea what the gospel really meant. It's not even what he's saying. This is a known profession of faith. I, I don't know if there's an age we can cut it off at, and I, I think he would give us it if, if we had it. But this is a, a person who has professed faith in Christ, probably even at that time been baptized. 
and, and they heard the gospel and they responded to it and they may even have some like initial fruit in their life. But afterwards, they deliberately kept on sinning. He says, no sacrifice for sins is left. I think there's a proper way we understand this. So we say, okay, this person has professed faith in Jesus Christ. They deliberately keep on sinning. But by their actions, they proclaim that they have no faith in God. Whatever they're actually saying with their mouth, with their life, thinks Titus, they show that they don't believe in God. There's no sacrifice that's left. Why? Because there's only one sacrifice for sins. And if you reject Jesus and you don't respond to the gospel with obedience, you're rejecting him. And that's what he tells us next, right after what he tells us Uh, what he tells us to expect if we turn away, if we apostatize, if we reject Christ by continually, deliberately sinning and living that way. Calling ourselves a slave of Christ, but proving ourselves a slave of sin. Only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So he says, if you profess faith in Christ, but you continually, deliberately give yourself over to sin, your fate will be the same as the false Messiah. Your your fate will be the same as all the worst people in history that you know are wicked. Your fate is going to be the same as the devil himself, the lake of fire, forever. That's where you're going, he says. That's what's waiting the enemies of God. Whether you're an enemy by saying you don't believe the gospel, or whether you're an enemy by saying you do, and yet showing with your life that you don't. Then he gives an example from the Old Testament. He says, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, when I read this, I was thinking, okay, well, is he actually, is he saying that anybody who rejected the law by disobeying in any kind of way, um, was he saying that that person um, was supposed to die on the testimony of, a wit- of, of uh, two or three witnesses? Um, and I, I wanted to go back to Numbers. I think this is a, an appropriate place. I'm going to read it. You can go there if you want. It's Numbers uh, 15. And uh, after he talks about offerings... He goes into talking, and he talks about like what kind of offerings for what kind of infractions. I think it's a less full explanation than you find in Leviticus. Um, but still, he explains various sacrifices for various things. But then in verse 30, he stops and he says, but. Like he talks about all the sacrifices for people who have unintentionally sinned. Over and over, that was a, that was a word that he would use to talk about the sacrifices for people who sinned. He would say, unintentional. That's the opposite of deliberate, right? But anyone who sins defiantly, in verse 30, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. Blaspheme is, is at heart an insult against God. There are many ways that could be accomplished, but at heart it's an insult against God. Blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. That's when he says cut off, he's talking about death, and that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Because they have despised, looked down on. To despise something is to hate something because you look down on it. You think little of it. Despised what? The Lord's word and broken his commands. They must be surely cut off. Their guilt remains on them. Those words are very similar to what the author of Hebrews is saying. I would not be surprised if the author of Hebrews was thinking about these words and saying, hey, they apply now in even a fuller way. Because we know more than they did. We're held accountable to a higher standard because we know more. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the witness of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think? I love it when scripture says to me, what do you think? I love this in, the, in, the, in, in, um, in, in this part in Hebrews because he's asking his audience, don't you agree with me? What do you think? 
if those people died because they willfully defied God by disobedience, what about now for the follower of Christ who says that Jesus Christ died in their place? How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished? Now, how does he describe this? Um, You could go back to Matthew 5 and Matthew 7, um, where he uses the same word, trampled. So, um, I'm probably going to get them mixed up, but Matthew 5 and Matthew 7 are where um, Jesus, uh, I think Matthew 7 says, be salt and light, right? And don't, um, uh, don't cast your pearls before swine. Otherwise, they might turn and trample you, right? And then in, I think it's Matthew chapter 5 where he says the salt and light, and he says, um, this salt, if it loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden on or trampled, it's the same word, by people. So what is he saying? What is the attitude of the continually, deliberately disobedient person who professes faith in Christ? They are walking all over the Son of God. They're treating as not useful, not special, not holy, not worthy. To be disregarded, useless. By our deliberate sin, by our continual, intentional sin, as professing believers, you trod on Jesus and you call his sacrifice and his blood worthless. That is what the author of Hebrews is saying. And if you continue in that, whether or not anybody knows about it, you are an apostate and you will not be with Christ forever. You will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you are insulting God in every way. You're treating his son and the sacrifice of his life, of his blood, as an unholy thing. He says here, the blood that sanctifies you. Remember what we said earlier, there are two aspects of sanctification. But this person is claiming that they've been set apart and made holy by the blood of Jesus, and yet they live a life of filth and unholiness. They insult Jesus. They despise his sacrifice. They insult the spirit of grace. God has offered tremendous grace to us. God has watched over and preserved his word through his people and through the Holy Spirit. And the person who professes Christ, professes faith in all of that word, and yet insults God in every way by continuing in willful disobedience. This is blasphemy. What do you think? How much more severely do those people deserve to be punished who have made a statement of faith in Jesus Christ, claimed to be alive because he died, to have eternal life because he rose again, to be justified by his blood. And inwardly they plan their next sin and they're going to continue doing it. Then he says, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, he's quoting the Old Testament here too. Um, And I found it remarkable that he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32. I actually marked that already. From Deuteronomy chapter 32. And if you'll remember from when we went through the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a song that God taught to Moses to teach to the people to be a witness for them about their future apostasy. Their future idolatry, which idolatry is apostasy, right? If you, if you turned away to another God, then you have turned away from the living God. This is what 
God told Moses. He says, write down this song. This is chapter 19 of, I'm sorry, verse 19 of chapter 31. Write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their ancestors, and when they, uh, they will turn, I'm sorry, I skipped a line, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me, apostasy, breaking my covenant, disobedience. And when many disasters and calamities come on them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. And again, one of their descendants is quoting it in Hebrews. I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land I promised them on oath. So Moses wrote down the song that day and he taught it to the Israelites. And then in verse In verse 34, after he's talked about how wicked the people are going to become, verse 34, he says, Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near. And their doom rushes upon them. The apostate will make himself clear through his sin, his deliberate, continual sin. And the same word that pronounced salvation in Jesus Christ ahead of time has pronounced that person's fate ahead of time as well. Sooner or later, their foot will slip. They will turn away. They'll reject me and they'll be punished. God taught that song to Moses so he would teach it to the people so there would be a witness for their future generations that would turn away and disobey and reject him by their disobedience. And the author of Hebrews calls that to his audience's mind. And today the Holy Spirit brings it to our mind. The same faithful God who gives his word and acts according to his word and makes untold promises, beautiful promises to his people who trust in his word, he makes terrible warnings to those who don't. So I want to remind us this, these few things, and then we're going to close. Consider these few things. This letter of exhortation was sent to a church was not a warning to people who had never professed faith in Christ. The people who originally received this letter, other than our lack of Jewishness, were just like us. It was a local gathering of people. They had professed faith in Christ. They probably took the Lord's Supper regularly. They were probably all baptized. They were encouraging and exhorting each other with Scripture. They were trying to obey, at least some of them, But some of them, just like some who may be present today or hear it later, are apostate. They're saying all the right things with their mouth. They may even be doing all the right things in front of people. But in their heart, they're disobedient and they reject the gospel. And even if none of us could identify that person, and that person went to the grave and received a funeral and, and, and it was a funeral for somebody who says, hey, this is a believer. And everybody's like, yeah, they're in a better place. But truly they weren't. This is a letter of exhortation sent to a church. We should read it like it's a letter of exhortation, a letter of warning to us. And examine ourselves. Because when we commit intentional sin, we are insulting God. We're insulting the blood of Christ that was shed for us. I think this has something to do with why it's so awful to receive the Lord's Supper when you don't actually know Christ. You're despising His blood. I'm not talking about transubstantiation of faith. I'm saying that this memorial of his blood and his body, you're despising that, the true meaning of it. You're treating it as unholy. You're trampling the Son of God. You're calling his sacrifice worthless. You're saying 
I'd rather have my pleasure than Christ. I'd rather have the pleasures, the secret pleasures of sin now and the praise of men now because I'm professing faith than I would rather have Christ forever. You are trampling the Son of God. You're treating His blood as unholy. And you have taken a step every time you commit deliberate sin. You're taking a step on the path of apostasy. You should be frightened. You should be scared. And I pray that you would repent. Because the Lord, the God who gave us his word, is faithful to his word. Last week, last week it was so encouraging, wasn't it? He who promised is faithful. This is what I said last week about this particular phrase. He who promises faithful. One essential part of the indestructible foundation of our faith, our ability to draw near to God, our hope for eternal glory, our love for God and others, is that God is faithful to his word. We hear his promises. We hear the gospel. We hear that, that he is holy and that we are sinful and unholy, corrupt in our very nature and unable to please him. But that God took on flesh not only to give us an example, but to live a righteous life that could be credited to our account through faith. So that not only does the death of Christ atone for our individual sins when we place our faith in Christ, but His righteous life is credited to our account. So God doesn't see us as neutral only. God sees us as righteous, as righteous as His Son. That is the gospel that we grab a hold of and we acknowledge. Though I am sinful, though I don't deserve it, Christ died in my place and gave me his righteousness. And you can believe it because God is faithful to his word. He said it and he will do it. He is able to do all he promises. But the faithfulness of God destroys those who reject it, who disbelieve him by disobedience. So in this passage, the faithfulness of God to his word is the reason that the apostate has an expectation of terrifying judgment. Certainly seems to indicate in the passage, I I can't fathom in my mind how there's degrees of punishment in hell, but it certainly seems to indicate in this passage, and there are other passages as well that seem to indicate the same thing, that apostasy brings about a higher expectation of judgment or worse judgment. I don't think that's going to give anybody hope who's rejecting Christ. I don't think there's any hope for the most comfortable spot in hell. Faithfulness of God to his word is the reason the apostate, the willfully, continually disobedient person, The person who rejects by their life, whether or not they reject him with their mouth, Jesus Christ. That apostate has terrifying judgment ahead of them. So, I just want to appeal to you one more time before we close. If you are engaged in unrepentant sin, if you are deliberately sinning and you know it, You need to repent because the path that you're on is a path to hell. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. If I was that person, if I was that person willfully, deliberately sinning, standing up here and preaching about it doesn't make hell any better for me. It makes it worse. So I'm appealing to you If you are engaged in deliberate sin, repent. Repent. Because the author of Hebrews is writing, he's sending a warning to those he loves so that they will hold fast to their faith, so they'll hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they will love Christ and others. And he he leads into this warning by saying, encourage each other. 
And earlier on in the book, he said, encouraging each other, so, encourage each other so you won't be deceived by sin. First John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. The desire, I'm sure, of the author of Hebrews is my desire for you and my desire for myself that I would not, that you would not engage ever in willful sin. But if you do, there is an advocate in Jesus Christ. There is an advocate with the Father. It's Jesus, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for us who have professed faith, but for the whole world, for anybody who may profess faith. But I urge you, confess your sin and trust in Christ, the only sacrifice. If you reject Christ, there is no other sacrifice. And if you've never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, He is the only way to the Father. He is the only name under heaven whereby men must be saved. He's the only Savior, but He is a great Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for today. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the heavy, even frightening warnings sometimes we read in Scripture. Because hopefully and prayerfully they make us pause and take stock and examine ourselves. Even ask other brothers and sisters to examine us too. If we find that we've been engaging in, in, in uh, unrepentant sin and continual sin or, or deliberate sin or both, God, I pray that the person like that, that, that you bring it to our attention, that you bring it to their attention, that you would allow that sin to be confessed. That you'd bring them to this point of repentance before it's too late. Father, thank you that we have a great Savior who atones for all our sin. Father, I ask that you would strengthen this church and that you would help each one of us to examine ourselves. And if there's any present who are on that path of apostasy, that you would arrest them in their tracks and bring them to repentance before it's too late. And if there's anyone here who's never made a profession of faith in Christ, never followed in baptism, never begun to taste and see that, the, that, the word of, that your word, that, that the word of Christ is good. I pray that you would convict them in their hearts and you'd bring them to salvation. God, thank you for the forgiveness that you have made available in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.